Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all and to worship the Lord together. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 8, if you'll turn there. That would be great. Uh, we do have a Good Friday service coming up um, this Friday at 9 a.m. And uh, according to the most recent advice I received from New South Wales, uh, as of tomorrow, no masks are required to be worn while singing. Recommended, but not required, so that's good. Um, and a two-square-meter rule while singing, so that will be excellent. Welcome news, and praise the Lord for the sun that's shining and for the renewal he brings. And Let's continue to pray and reach out to those who are doing it tough with the flooding and recovering from that. And praise the Lord that he, he supplies our needs. He, he knows our needs even before we ask. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all. You are faithful. Thank you that you do cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You cause your sun to shine and that you have promised you would never uh, flood the earth again as you did in Noah's day where all flesh was destroyed. And thank you, Lord, for your salvation through Christ, that through him we are preserved. By faith in him, we have new life, and thank you that he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us even now, and that you have sent the Holy Spirit. You have given us the down payment of our salvation, and we rejoice to think upon you now, to open your word, to draw near to you in faith, and I pray, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit. You'd give us understanding of your truth and help us apply it to our lives faithfully. We rejoice, Lord, to be called your children, to be accepted in the Beloved. How privileged and blessed we are in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought the songs today dovetail very well with where we're going with this message, starting with King Solomon, who was um, a great man of enormous wealth, and he had fame, he had wisdom, he really had everything that people in the world strive for. He had these building projects and he built the temple in seven years. He spent 13 years building his own house. He imported cedar and uh, horses, chariots, peacocks, apes, like all this stuff that most people wouldn't be able to afford or even know about. But he knew about them. He's importing them. He has so much gold, so much silver that he stopped counting it. It was like it was rocks. That's how common it was in his day. And after acquiring wives and uh, goods and honor, he was struck with the emptiness of life. That, yes, I've acquired all this, but it's all going to go to somebody else who didn't work for it, who won't necessarily manage it well or wisely. And everything that I've accomplished, the things that I've said, it, they will be forgotten by generations to come. I won't be remembered. And he sees the sun rising and setting and the waves going out and in the tide and the cycle of life and just saying, What's it accomplishing? This is vanity. He realized buying new things, there's a happiness that comes with that, but it wears off. The exotic things he would acquire at some point, he's like, ah, where's the new thing? And he wrote this in Ecclesiastes 1, 9, and 10. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. The concept like that new phone that you have, it's not really new. It's an upgrade. It may have some more features than the previous model, but it's still a phone and it's still going to grow old. 
And phone is just a means of primarily communicating. And communication has been done through flashing lights and written messages and um, recordings and many different ways over time. So it's just another way. It's new technology. It's repackaged. It's reskinned. But it's the same thing that we've been trying to do all along, is to communicate with one another, stay connected. Solomon was born under the covenant of law. He said, there's nothing new. But the writer of Hebrews could say, you know, there is something new that God has done. He's made a new way for us to know him because he has come to us. He has become one of us, and we have fellowship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not a reskin. It's not an innovation out of the law. This is something totally new and dynamic God had done so that man could know him, so man could draw closer to God than the law ever could. And we have this blessing to be born again by faith, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to receive eternal life and have assurance of that that people in the old days, even the high priest, never had. And Hebrews shows Jesus was a high priest of the order of Melchizedek who has an eternal and unchanging priesthood far greater than that of Aaron. And he introduced a better hope, Jesus did, uh, of a better covenant established upon better promises that has rendered the old one obsolete as a way of righteousness or of seeking God. So we arrive here at Hebrews 8 where we're summing up what we've talked about so far. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. This is a bit of a recap of what had been spoken of in the previous chapters, that the risen and living Jesus He is the high priest God has established. He's in that temple not made with hands in the heavens, sitting at the right hand of the Father who lives to make intercession for us. He's not like Hophni or Phinehas who were greedy fornicators in the temple. He wasn't like Caiaphas who denied the testimony of John the Baptist or that Jesus was the Messiah. He is the great high priest who is without sin. He's God's only begotten son. He's pure. He's holy. He doesn't need a holiday. He doesn't need a rest. He's always on call. He's always uh, at the Father's right hand. There's no successor lined up. There's no substitute. He is our Savior and Messiah and King. So this new way of drawing near to God, it's the permanent way. It's the only way that we can know him. And notice in this passage, it says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven. He's a minister of the sanctuary who's sitting. The song said standing. This scripture says he's sitting. And that's a posture that no no priest could ever adopt in the temple because there's no chair in there. If you were a high priest going into the temple, you were serving. You would walk in and there would be the altar of incense. To the left, the menorah. To the right, the table of showbread. Behind the veil, there would be the presence of God that dwelt above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Priests ministering, there was no place to sit. There was no time to sit. They were in there tending to, they were trimming the lamps. They were filling them with oil. They were replacing the bread. 
They were offering the incense. They were sprinkling the blood. They were always active in there. There was no like downtime. Let's take a break and kind of lean up against the side of the tabernacle. No. That was like you're in the presence of God and you are on call. You are working. You're serving. Now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father because his work of atonement is complete. The redemption is finished. There's no work that needs to be done because he offered up himself once for all. There's no need on the day of atonement as if there is such a day anymore because he has provided atonement once for all. There was no morning sacrifice or the dressing of the lamps or the donning of the priestly garments to sacrifice the bulls and the lambs to have the scapegoat and set it free. Jesus doesn't need to bring coals from the altar anymore. Bring it into the Holy of Holies because he's already there. All these things pointed to him. They were shadows of what he would accomplish. Atonement has been made. The nations have been sprinkled. There is new life through Christ. He sits in all honor and authority, ruling and ministering. Under the law, they had no assurance of salvation. They could do all these things, but they didn't know for sure they had favor with God because they were working to earn it. But because Christ has sat down, that work of earning it, he has accomplished. The righteousness has been imputed to us, those who trust in him. Our sins atoned for, our redemption complete, Jesus sits down. And that is glorious. That temple that stood in Jerusalem, it would be destroyed. All the trappings of the temple, all the vestments, the relics, the articles, they would all be carried off. Verse 3, it says, Priests were appointed by God to both offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, Jesus has much to offer. We think a lot about what Jesus has done, but notice he is currently offering. He is currently ministering. He is making intercession. He is our mediator. He is our representative in the presence of the Father right now. The priests, they would utter prayers to God. Jesus is our mediator. He's our representative before the Father. So you think of the burning light of the lamp, right? Jesus is the light of the world that shines in the darkness. The showbread that was placed there, Jesus is the bread of life. When we receive him, we will live forever. That incense that was continually burning there when they went in to minister, it's like the prayers, the ministry that Jesus does before the Father to perfectly convey our hearts to him, our desires, our thanks, our requests. It's like he perfectly enunciates what we can't even put into words to the Father without intermission. Hebrews 8 verse 4, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, he would not have been allowed to serve in the te temple as a priest because he's not of the tribe of Levi. The previous chapter explained that because of the weakness and the unprofitableness of the law to save, a change of the law was required. 
a change of the priesthood, this priesthood of Melchizedek, of that order. That's an eternal and unchangeable priesthood. Verse 4, it suggests, because it's in the present tense, that ministry was currently taking place when this was written. So at that time, remember this is written to Christian Hebrews, people of a Jewish background, they still would go to temple. They would still be um, observing the feasts, keeping the law. And now the writer is saying those priests, that temple, that's a copy of the heavenly thing. A copy and a shadow. Now the shadow we know is not the object, right? That a copy is not the original. It's a likeness of the original. A print of priceless work of art, it can be reproduced on a postcard for a buck, right? It's that, but it's not the real thing. And even if it's a picture of a landscape or a tree, it's not a tree. It's just a representative of a tree. It represents that thing. And it must have been a shocking revelation that there was only one place in the world where the temple could legitimately be built on Mount Moriah, And yet that is only a copy or a shadow of the real thing. So that priest that they revered, that place that they saw as a holy place, they're like, that's just a copy. This really special place is just a shadow of the real thing. So don't be distracted by the shadow when you have Christ who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The ministry, it only pointed to the ministry that Jesus fulfills, that he's fulfilling right now. This quote in verse 5, it's from Exodus 25, 40, that God spoke to Moses and said, make the objects or the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown you. So here's the framework. This is how, what you're supposed to do. Now, I've never been a skilled artist. I'm sure that there's at least a handful like me. I feel very sorry for you if you're on my Pictionary team. Um, One thing I did like doing, though, as a kid was tracing pictures. I guess that's what you do if you really don't know how to draw or you have no skill. You get a picture that's nice, nice and bold. You can put another piece of paper on and you can trace it and then color it in. You're like, wow, look at what I did. So you did something nice uh, that you don't have the skill naturally to do. And of course, being a copy, it had a far less detail than the original. It And it was just my original. It was just a representation of what the actual artist had done. The priesthood revered by the Jews, it was like a traced picture. It was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. As real as it was, as magnificent as it was, it was just a hint of what the reality is that we have in Christ. And Jesus is in far greater ministry than that bustling temple mount because we can know God in a more personal sense than the high priest could in that day where he could only approach God once a year on the Day of Atonement, first confessing his own sins and the sins of the people. We have access through Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father into that throne room of grace to have mercy and grace in time of need every day, all day, all the time. Because he's ministering right now for us. The ridiculousness of going back to the law as a means of approaching God, it's kind of like hugging an old picture of a friend you haven't seen in a while when they're standing right there with their arms open. And you're like, oh, it was so good when we were together. To to go back to those days. And he's, hi, here I am. Like, Jesus is there. You want to approach God, you're approaching him through the shadow, the tracing, the, this, 
this representation. He is there and he's doing it for you. He's ministering to the Father. That there's this continuing ministry in the heavens that the ministry on the Temple Mount should not distract you from. Verse 6, but now he has attained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. When we say better, it's really a matter of preference, right? You say this music is better than that. Or this type of a more liturgical service is better than a contemporary one. Or some, some would say a hymn is better or more contemporary music is better. But this, what he's saying between the shadow and the reality, it's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of what actually is working. So for our preferences, both could be valid. A more liturgical style setting that's honoring Christ or a more contemporary one, we can honor Jesus Christ in both. But one of them was obsolete. One of them, based on law, had been annulled because Jesus had established a better covenant based upon better promises. And so, just for fun, I thought I'd bring in a few items that are obsolete. And uh, so I went through my little keepsake, and I have some 70s Preservation Society cassettes of disco music. And, and some people would say it's better that I can't play these now because I don't have a tape player. Maybe some of you do, but I don't. So for me, it's, it's a keepsake, but I really can't use it. It's of no use to me. Um, I also have, uh, let's see, because I was just going for those, but I'm like, there's actually a lot of obsolete items in here. So I've got my Department of Defense badge when I was working uh, as a contractor to go onto a marine base. So this expired in 2015. Uh, it's no longer good to gain access to anything. And then I have this, my teeth. <laughs> These were really useful for me at one point when I was a child, but now they're of no use to me. And you say, why do you have them? Don't know, just do. Where these examples fail is at one point they were all useful for me to accomplish something. The law could never accomplish its intended purpose because no one could keep it. That was the problem. The law was good, the law was righteous, but no one was good enough to keep the law. And so it failed to provide the righteousness needed by people. It only exposed their sin. The new covenant is better because it currently works for us. It's actually effective to accomplish what God desires, unlike these obsolete items that don't work for my purposes. Guzik wrote this, Jesus has mediated for us a better covenant, a covenant of grace and not of works, guaranteed for us by a co-signer. It is a covenant marked by believing and receiving instead of earning and deserving. And this example of a co-signer is really good because in the previous chapter, in Hebrews 7.22, it talks about a surety. And that's what a cosigner is. It's someone who, like, let's say I want to get a loan. I don't have any assets or, or, uh, or capital. And so someone who has the capital can say, I will sign for you to make good on this loan in case you don't. And it's like Jesus is our surety. He is our cosigner who's saying, I deem them as righteous. Their righteousness comes from me. I'm able to meet the requirements of the law because I have fulfilled the law, and therefore they are acceptable. 
in the sight of the Father. And he's given us the down payment of the Holy Spirit who fills us. So we have the Holy Spirit as evidence of our salvation, a down payment that we are born again, we are going to heaven, and we'll be with him forever. So this new covenant, it's in full force today, having made the old obsolete. We read this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Jesus said, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul wrote to believers in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So this new covenant, it is in full force. Jesus had his disciples remember him before his crucifixion, because this is the covenant that he was establishing that very day when he was crucified. And also, um, this new covenant that we have received and walk in, we have been made able ministers. So it's not like he will make us. Someday we'll be able ministers. No, he has made us able ministers of the new covenant because he has established it and the Holy Spirit lives in us. Jesus has the righteous resources to spare He gives it to us by his grace. We receive it through faith in him, and then we walk in it towards him and others. Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's an important distinction made here that the problem was not with the law itself. It says, and finding fault with them. That's what the law was really good at doing. It pointed out the unrighteousness of the people. It showed, it exposed their hypocrisy, their sin, their rebellion. And they were unable to keep the law. The law could not produce anything good in a person. It just showed how rotten we really are and our need for forgiveness from God. That we fall, for, we fall short of his perfect standard. Now our tendency is this. If no competitor can clear the height we lower the standard, right? No one can jump 10 feet, so we drop it down. How about two? Oh, we can make that. Let's see how high we can go. God does not lower his standard. He kept his standard perfect, flawless, righteous. We all have fallen short of it. So he sent Jesus, who kept the law, who fulfilled it, who cleared it in every way, so that by faith in him, we can be forgiven. We can be restored to new life with God. We can be born again because of this new covenant he's established. Verses 8 through 12, it's a quote from Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. Through the prophets, God had said, I am going to make a new covenant with you. This was in the Old Testament. He said this is coming, like he gave this divine foreshadowing of what he was going to do. He didn't say how he was going to do it or when, but he had told them, this is a new covenant that I'm going to make. And Looking back, we can say it was done through Christ. Now, 
What's neat is in the Greek, nihos, or it means uh, new in respect to time, which is recent, a reproduction of the old in quality or character. Now, this new covenant, it's not that word. The word that's there is kainos, which is defined by vines as that which is unaccustomed or unused, not new in time, recent, but new as to form or quality of different nature from which is contrasted as old. So there's this whole new thing. It's not reskinned. It's not just a new type. It's a totally new thing, totally unaccustomed to previously. It's like the difference between riding a bicycle as a mode of transportation and flying in a plane. They're both transport. They can both get you from one place to another. But the bicycle, it that push bike requires your effort to move it. And there's also a place where it cannot go. It cannot go over a mountain, and it cannot cross the Pacific Ocean unless you carry it. Right? But a plane, think of the difference. You're sitting there, not moving a muscle, eating lunch, taking a nap, and meanwhile, you're flying across continents and mountains and valleys and arriving at a different destination, guided by the pilot. It's so amazing what God has done. A new covenant was needed to approach God because no amount of our peddling and trying could cross that gap. We could not approach him. We could not get to him through trying to, well, just failing to keep the law. So he made a way for us through Christ, through faith in him. And this promise to Israel of a new covenant, it's not intended to end with Israel because what did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea, to the ends of the earth, that we would be his disciples who were sent out. And the Jews brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And we now, we carry his message to all who will hear. It's not a renovation, this new life. It's not a, a new lease on life. It is a totally new life. It is a different life, a better life based upon better promises. Seeing God's people did not continue in his covenant, he said, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it's a strange thing how something that's new can become old pretty soon. The Hebrews were dull for much hearing. We read that earlier in the book. And having received this new covenant, we too, the newness of it, the amazing uh, thing we have in Christ, it can wear off. We can become like, ah, you know, like, yeah, Jesus, he's great. But we don't realize what we have. We can't, we're not appreciating it fully. It's like God had given his people commands that were supposed to govern their external behavior. And yet he's saying, for you, I'm going to put my law into your heart. Instead of looking at a tablet of stone and trying to live up to it, I'm going to put my life inside of you. I'm going to live through you. I'm going to redeem and cleanse you of your sin and give you a new life with me forever, without intermission. You remember where the Ten Commandments were stored? There was only one copy. They were stored in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, the place where the Spirit of God dwelt. Under the New Covenant, Christians are now the temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells. 
and he puts his laws into our hearts. So the, the absence of the Mosaic law doesn't mean lawlessness. It means now we have the law of God written on our hearts and in our minds, and he convicts us of sin. He leads us in truth. He causes us to go beyond what the law demanded in showing love for others, in praying for our enemies, in doing good to those who hate us. God communicates to us personally what he has said. He gives us understanding of his word. Now our lives are not governed by the letter of the law that kills, but by his love, grace, and mercy, his compassion. The Holy of Holies, that was just one place. But through the Holy Spirit, his presence is in every believer wherever he puts us in the world. And the glory of God shines through our lives for the world to see, unlike that gilded box that was behind the curtain in darkness. He shines through us. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 5. We have a propensity to focus on the wrong things sometimes. And it takes the Bible to reveal this to us. We can put a lot of emphasis on our appearance or what we're actually doing, but God's looking at the heart. And we have his treasure within us. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves for bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We can be much more preoccupied with the condition of this earthen vessel than the treasure of the Lord who lives within us, who shines through us, who illuminates uh, this world with his excellence. Do we treasure the presence of God? that the living God dwells within you. Has that become old, old news? Or are you still struck with the wonder of it? That the God who created everything loves me. He has accepted me and forgiven me. He fills me. He shines through me. He, the, he, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, sitting, making intercession for me. What a treasure. Hebrews 8, verse 11 None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The Jews rightly saw themselves as being the informed ones when it came to the law of God, and the covenant of law. And historically, they're very open to share their knowledge with people willing to conform to the law and to uh, become Jews themselves. And the synagogues that were established, they weren't really, I, I didn't take a lot of time to research into it, but the synagogue was never commanded in the law. And it really came about after the establishment of the second temple. That's when the synagogues began to occur because of the rabbis. Um, they wanted to build something after the, the Babylonian captivity for communal prayer. It was a place to pray. 
And we read of Jesus teaching in a synagogue, but that was a relatively early, uh, a recent innovation. They hadn't been around from the beginning. They had only been around after because people had been scattered. They had assimilated a bit with the foreign uh, cultures, and then there was a need to teach them and to train them. And so there was readings. They were being exposed to Judaism. And this is what I read in Chabad.org. It says, the primary public worship experience remained the journey to Jerusalem to participate in and be inspired by the temple service. When the Romans destroyed the second temple, the only place for public worship remained the synagogue, which then acquired increased importance at the center of Jewish communal life. That's very interesting to me. This is from a non-Christian source, just an Orthodox source, where it's like their big religious experience was going to the temple, being inspired by the temple worship. And then the synagogue came about after the fall of the temple. It really grew in prominence because there was no temple anymore. And this was a place where they could get together and worship and pray. And so a lot of secondhand information was passed along, like a neighbor teaching his neighbor. Oh, you do know what this means. And there, there wasn't the kind of instruction from the temple, but under this new covenant that God had promised, he would personally commune with those who trusted in him. All of God's people could know him in a more profound and personal way than the high priest could claim because we know Christ and he knows us. He dwells in us. We have fellowship with God through him and he's annulled that first covenant as a means of finding favor with God and he's established a new covenant with this assurance of eternal life. The trappings of the old law, they would soon vanish away when in 70 AD, the temple was sacked and destroyed by the Romans. The, the articles of the temple paraded in, a, what was it, a triumph, you know, carried away. And what now? It had been made obsolete. Jewish historian Josephus estimated that 1.1 million Jews were killed during that time, and they were scattered. So this would have hit them really hard, when, when they're reading, this is going to be made obsolete, this is going to be fading away, and when the temple fell, it just was amazing to, to realize what it meant to them. God said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. So in nailing the law to the cross with Jesus, atonement was made for believers, sin was abolished along with law, cannot condemn us anymore. Because Christ has paid that price for us. Now, the law being annulled does not mean we are lawless. Because, of course, we are led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in agreement with the word of God. Our motives for following him are different than trying to please him. But because he has received us, we rejoice to obey him. To honor and glorify him. Sins committed in ignorance. Sin out of rebellion. Sin that happens when you do your best, but you do not hit the mark. You miss the mark. He, he says, I will remember those sins no more. Now, this is not like us, right? Where it says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. I will remember their sins no more. We're very good at remembering when someone has treated us unfairly, right? Someone has hurt us in some way. We remember that. God has not forgotten about our sins. He's saying, I will not remember them. 
anymore. In remembering them, he has put them to death. And now he says, I will remember them no more. So we do not need to be held uh, captive by guilt and shame over what Christ has cleansed us of. And let us not walk in those shameful things anymore and repent when we sin. But this is such a better promise than that of law. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Like the law, you read through it, it's like, if you sin, you die. You gather sticks on the Sabbath, you get stoned. It's like, wow, that's really harsh. But showing the severity of sin, showing how it separates us from God, how it is wickedness before him. And he is a just judge. Let's turn to Luke chapter 5, 29 for a point of application. This truth of this new covenant, it ought not to only impact the way we view Christ and how he's ministering for us now, but also how we approach others, our interactions with them. It ought to have that impact on us. So let's rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, and we can show how much we value what he's doing for us by how we deal with others, with love and grace. So this, this scene here, it takes place after Jesus called Levi to follow him. And Levi was a tax collector, uh, hated by the Jews. And we'll see that people were offended that Jesus would eat with them. Luke chapter 5, verse 29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, those who, have no, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days." Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says... The old is better. The scribes and Pharisees, those experts of the law, they said, Jesus, if you're a righteous man, what are you doing eating with wicked people? Why are you eating with sinners? They were careful to avoid the things the law deemed as unclean, but they didn't believe that Jesus was righteous and that sin didn't stick to him. He, he is clean. He's the one that... When someone comes to him, he can wash them of their sins. He can forgive them of their sins because he's God. He's not contaminated by what he touches or what's around him. That the, the, pre, the priests and uh, Pharisees were very careful to protect their exterior, while in the inside, they were like uh, tombs, whitewashed, with dead men's bones inside. Jesus came to make sinners repent, to make them new creations, to forgive them, to make them righteous by faith in him. They didn't believe that John was a prophet from, from God, but they appreciated some of the things John did because he was very careful to keep the law. He fasted and prayed, and the Pharisees were like, right on, that's good. You should be doing that. We don't believe he's from God, but we, we can uh, 
respect his methods because he's like us. He's doing what we think he should do. But Jesus said he uses this picture of a wedding to show how silly their question was. Because if you had a wedding and the bridegroom came, there had been a year of preparation likely that had gone to that moment. And when that bridegroom comes, it's not time to fast, it's time to feast. It's like now is the time to celebrate because the bridegroom is here. Now there will be a time, Jesus said, when the bridegroom, which is him in this tale, will be parted from us and we should fast in those days. There will be an appropriate time for that. But the questions of the Pharisees were asked out of unbelief. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They did not believe that he was righteous. Then, to illustrate, he uses this two-pronged parable. He talked about mending clothes and about wineskins. No one would try to mend an old garment with a new patch. Why? You put that new patch over that large hole, that new patch will shrink, and it will pull the other fabrics and actually make it worse than before. So if you're going to mend an old garment, you would take some uh, fabric that was matching, that was pre-shrunk, something that would actually fit. That's the one you would use. And then the wineskins. You would have a skin of leather that you would put the wine in. And an old wineskin would become brittle. New wine, it would expand. And so it would burst that, I guess, dry old skin, and it wouldn't be good for anything. Now, that dry old skin could be used for water, but because of the, uh, the wine uh, expanding, it would damage both. You'd lose everything. So you always put new wine in new wineskins. The word he uses, neos, wine, put into kainos, bottles. They would both be preserved. You need that new in the new. Jesus He would usher in a new covenant that we must be born again to receive. We have to be made new so we can walk in this new covenant. It could not be administered by the law. So we need to be new to walk in this new covenant. And then the Holy Spirit, he fills us, he regenerates us. And he puts that principle. So I lay all that down to get to that end there where it says, no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. When you're familiar with something, when it's part of your life, you prefer that thing. And the Jews, for them, the law was that old wine. It was part of their life. They had developed a taste for it. They had developed a preference for it. They were not interested in changing that part of their life at all. But Jesus said that the Father had put in this new covenant based on better promises. The Hebrews, they trusted Christ and were born again. They didn't realize that Jesus was their high priest in heaven because they still had a high priest in the temple and that that was just the shadow of what Christ is, the reality. So like, don't be distracted by that. Look to Christ now. He's the one who has made you born again. And after being born again, we can be stuck in our old ways our old ways of sinning, our old ways of thinking, our old ways of coping with struggles of life. We have a Savior, but we're not looking to Him. We're saying the old way is better. It's more comfortable. There's a degree of peace in that, but it doesn't last. We're empty. Many of our griefs, it comes from trying to put a new patch on an old garment. We try to 
to amend our ways without being born again first. We must be born again. We must repent of our sin, confess Christ as Lord, and then, guess what? We can walk in this new covenant of grace and mercy, being deemed righteous not because we've earned it, we can't, but because we've received it by that free gift of salvation. That old covenant of law, it's obsolete. Jesus has established a new covenant that changes forever the way we relate to God and people. We've received his mercy, his grace, and his love. That's much better, a much better guide than an eye for an eye or one turn deserves another or me first. Anything that the flesh says, well, that makes sense. That's fair. Well, is fair gracious? Is fair merciful? No. God remembers your sins no more. What right do you have to hold them against your brother or your sister? He says, I will remember your sin no more. Do you have a right to do that when, when you're now coming before God and he's saying that to you? You're going to say that to somebody else? Oh, I remember what you said. I remember what you did. We have a better hope. We have a better covenant based upon better promises because of Christ. And praise the Lord for the ministry of Jesus today. He has atoned for us. He intercedes for us. He has sent the Holy Spirit to help and to comfort us. And he's written his law upon our hearts. And he guides us into all truth. How blessed we are. Let's thank him. Father in heaven, thanks so much for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world and making him our mediator, our representative before the Father, having sat down at the right hand, who lives to make intercession for us. Lord, forgive us when we go back to the shadow, when we seek the copy, when you are the reality. I pray that you would show us, Lord, where we have at times sought to earn your favor or earn uh, peace rather than receiving it by faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, forgive us when we have resorted to old ways of dealing with conflicts and troubles rather than uh, confessing and forsaking them before you, of uh, walking according to that grace, mercy, compassion, and truth that you've shown. You're so good to us, Father. We are so blessed to be accepted in the Beloved. And we, are, we delight so much that you have chosen to put your treasure in these earthen vessels. Lord, break us. Humble us. May we humble ourselves before you, Lord, that your light would shine, that people would see your goodness, that this transformation, this new creation that you've made us would be evident for all, and you would receive the glory for that, Father. Thank you for what you've done in the gospel and what you're doing right now on our behalf. Thank you for speaking to us and for ministering by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.